Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, work, coffeebar.com. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 157. And my guest this week is Dallas Green. You know him from Alexis on Fire. You know him from City in Color. Do you know, I'm going to confess this. I never thought twice about the name City in Color. I just thought it was a good name, you know, but I didn't put it together that it was Dallas as in city, green as in color. There's so many people that are like probably hearing that and being like, well, yeah, you didn't realize that right away. But maybe I'm getting through to the people who are just like me, who are having that realization right now. You are not alone. You are not alone. I just met Dallas for the first time in person uh, just a couple, I guess I could say over a month ago. Uh, we played a festival together in Europe and uh, just what a lovely guy. He came up and introduced himself because uh, we all thought it was silly that we'd never met. He's in the Reminders music video, but he also has a long standing relationship with Nick Steinhardt from Touche, who has done several of uh, the album covers of projects that he's been a part of. Um, so it was really nice to, to finally meet him. He's just such a lovely, lovely guy. And I was really excited to have this conversation. I want to mention, if you are new here, that there's a bonus episode available right now where Dallas answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that bonus episode by heading over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe and uh, get access to that for as little as $3 a month. If you subscribe for just a little bit more, you get to uh, access the tier that allows you to also ask questions to upcoming guests for upcoming bonus episodes. It's something fun that we do over there. Also, there's a Discord channel. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, so, yeah, it helps support the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Um, also, if you're new here, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. It would mean a lot. Uh, City and Color is on tour right now. He uh, just left. I think tonight he's going to be in Salt Lake City. Check out his website for all his upcoming tour dates. Um, so, yeah, I think that's it. I hope you enjoy this. Uh, here is me, 
talking to the incredibly talented, wonderfully kind, ultra charming Dallas Green. What's going on, Dallas? It's nice to see you. How are you? I'm great, man. It's nice to see you too. And I'm really glad that we've actually finally met in person before doing this. I you completely, know? completely agree. It's, uh, do you have this experience too, where you're on the European summer tour festival run and you're looking at the lineups every day and you sort of like make the checklist of like, okay, I have to make sure I at least see that person today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You guys were on that list for me, you know, like, I think I told you that when I saw you, I was just, I was stoked to, cause you know, that doesn't happen all the time, especially when I'm doing sort of these, I think we talked a little bit, just doing sort of these kind of festivals that have a real wide range of people playing on them. A lot of times you, you just end up oddly enough, not, they're not, there's nobody, you know, or you want to see, and it just kind of goes by. So it was really, it was nice to have uh, wake up and see that we were playing on the same day. No, totally. And then when all the guys in my band told me that you had stopped by our room to introduce yourself, and of course, it was like the one time I wasn't in the room at that moment. I was like, oh, God damn it. So I'm glad we ended up running into each other, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. um, How was that tour for you? Were you over there for a while? No, it was a quick little, um, it was like a two week kind of festival run with a few headliners mixed in. And it was shows that I had been holding on to from that had rolled over all the way from 2020, like oh, a bunch shit. of those, yeah. those festival festivals that I was playing were the, were thankfully they just kept kind of like, um, they've, they'd kept my slot there or whatever. So it was right. like go, going back to do these shows that I was supposed to do three years ago. So it was kind of this little, small little run that was just, um, just a real quick. It was only like six shows or something like that. Okay. Okay. You know, it was, but it was fun. It was lots of fun. Was that your first time being over there since the shutdown and all that stuff? No, I had gone over with, uh, I think I had done, we'd done an Alexis tour over in the UK and Europe last year. Okay. And I think I maybe have gone there. I can't, it all becomes a blur. No, it does. Yeah. Especially (laughs) it's well in a good way. It's kind of nice that I feel like I've been touring now for the last couple of years since, <laughs> which, totally. you know, cause I, I went out early, like in the fall of 21, I went back out on the road, just like kind of like a solo, we call it mostly solo where it's me, but my friend Matt plays on stage with me too, but it's not the band. Yeah. But yeah it's yeah. like, it's a way for me to play sort of appease people who want to see me play, but by myself, but also not be lonely and I can bring my friend, but we call it mostly solo. Um, but yeah, so it's it's nice to actually kind of find that I've been out on the road for a year and a half or two and tours are starting to blend together again. Yeah, you for know? sure. For sure. Do you have any funny like circumstances you've ever been in with those European festivals where you end up playing with somebody that you never thought you would ever get to like meet or anything like yeah. that? Because it's it's yeah, those things. That's, I think, for me, the most exciting part about those European festivals is because I feel like in the States specifically, they're usually pretty genre determined where it's like, oh, you know, yes. it's, like, it's always a lot of just rock bands or whatever. But then they're way more of a mixed bill. I mean, that fest that you and I played together, we got to watch Cigarose, which is like, yes, that doesn't happen in the States for us. So, no. And yeah, yeah it was like. Ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, I think the interesting part, too, about being in the doing the two different bands 
definitely when I started playing more shows like with City and Color at festivals, I found myself with bands and lineups that like I could just never have imagined playing with when I was younger. Totally. You know, like whether whether it be like bigger, you know, I remember playing a festival in in um in England called Hop Farm and it was like uh the Eagles headlined. Oh my god. And like but like Brian Ferry played and um wow like brandon flowers from the killers his solo thing played and 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 then it was me and it was like you know it was just a real like wow okay i never thought i'd be playing shows like this and then that one we played in belgium was was like it was like interpol and cigarettes but machine gun kelly and and you know so you you find yourself um all over the place and it's kind of see like i think we kind of talked about this a little bit at that was i I like being put in a in a a lineup like that where there's just so many different styles of music. I guess you know it's all sort of under the popular music balloon. But I I like when there's a diverse, uh, hopefully like a group of people who are out there just to listen, mm-hmm. you know. And they'll yeah. they'll be there to watch Touche More or they'll be there to go and watch uh, Machine Gun Kelly or then they'll go and watch Cigarettes. And I think exposing people to all these different types of music at one festival is is super cool. And it's not as segregated, like you said, the right. North American festivals tend to be. Yeah. And I feel like the European audience specifically is so much more in tune with that line of diversity that they find themselves going to watch just any kind of genre. And they seem actively interested, which is something yes. that also I feel like we don't have. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I know the, the bored luck you're talking about. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, we could, we could start just kind of chipping away at this first experience thing. Once again, I appreciate you being here. Um, the, uh, so you're from St. Catharines originally. Mm-hmm. Nice. And, have at what point did you end up did, did you end up moving to toronto at some point like when you were like in your teens or in your no it was like- i was i was in my mid-20s uh i moved here because my you know my girlfriend at the time lived here and was from here and worked here and it just sort of started to make more sense that when i got home from tour she wouldn't drive to st Catharines every time you know when totally. i would be home for a stretch and then we ultimately got married and yeah. she's from here her family's here and so we I just sort of relocated to Toronto um not you know I probably would have eventually anyways I think most people that grow up kind of around where we grew up at some point if you feel the need to go you know leave your town you'll go to Toronto or or Vancouver or something like you kind of right right or Montreal right you'll like you'll kind of go out to one of the big cities in Canada and so I I I assume I probably would have ended up moving to Toronto a little um, eventually. It was just, we were so busy. Like, you know, I, I started touring with Alexis in, when I was 21 and we were, you know, we were just kind of touring. So the the thought of like moving out of our parents' houses and all that stuff was, A, we couldn't do it yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, but then B was just, we were all, we were just young and, weren't even thinking about like leaving home. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, cause we yeah. were already leaving home all the time. Totally. Totally. No, you know I understand. I mean? Yeah. You yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Like when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically 
that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house by parents or something, but something that you found that yeah. gave you a sense of identity. Well, I think what was really instrumental for me, pun intended, was um, skateboarding. When I was, you know, my I had a I had a, a very cool older cousin named Matthew, and he li- didn't live too far away from me. My sister, my older sister, was cool too. So they both they both were very good at showing me stuff when I was really young, you yeah. know, because I I started playing. My my parents got me guitar lessons when I was really young, and so I was pretty inquisitive. So but but I think when my cousin got me into skateboarding and then I started watching skate video videos, the correlation between like my love of skating and my love of music just like smashed into each other. And, and that became my like the place I would l- go to not only be like stoked on on wanting to go skate, but just listening to the songs the guys would put to the parts, you know, and, and then it became like if you remember like 411 video magazines, you. Do you remember that? It was a skateboarding. Actually, I do. So I'm uncool in the sense that I never skateboarded, but well, I'm, okay. you know, but I'm familiar with obviously like the the intro that so many people got with these great great skate videos because yeah. not only was there often like underground punk and hardcore and things like that, but it was also super diverse in a lot where there'd also be oh, like great hip hop or great. Yeah, that's that was like rock. my my t- my early teens, like my you know eighth, ninth, tenth grade was such a explosion of like watching skate videos, but also kind of being, I've been playing guitar for a couple of years at that point. And so like with 411 video magazine, the, the reason I bring that up is because it, it wasn't just like a, a company putting out a skate vid. It was like them giving you a bunch of different companies and skater segments. So each segment would have, a different kind of vibe to it. So you'd be one guy would be skating to souls of mischief or something. So I got into like, sort of like that nineties West coast skate hip hop or first time I ever heard the band archers of low, who I would then go on to fall in love with yeah, was in a, a four in one part, right? Like it's just some montage and these dudes are skating and I'm like, what is that band? And then you're watching the credits and archers of love. Okay. I don't even know what that means, you know, and then try to find the CD. And so it was, I think, I think skateboarding is the thing that made me feel or introduced me to, to like how much I would become passionate about, about music in general. You know what totally. I mean? Yeah. Do, do you remember what you gravitated towards first? Was it more of like the punk stuff or was it actually just like a complete yeah. middle ground between the punk and hip hop stuff? It, I think it was the punk stuff because I, I was also really like, I was young enough too where it was right when grunge was happening. So mm-hmm. I was, I was really, I could, I could feel myself being like pulled towards this sort of just a aggra- aggressive, more aggressive music or something, or like, and, you know, to, to, for all I knew, like Alice in Chains was, that was like everything I needed it to be. It was heavy. It was dark. It was melodic. And so things like that were like my first sunk its teeth in first, you know? So this the skate vids, I would gravitate towards the more punk and, and guitar oriented stuff. But my cousin, Matthew was real into hip hop. He was a head, like he was a DJ. So he would make me mixtapes of like all the dudes that were rapping in the vids, you know, and he'd be like, okay, here's a tape that's got hieroglyphics on it. It's got casual, it's got Dell, it's got 
uh, special ed. It's got like all, you know, and I, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. So I'd listen to these tapes that my cousin would give me, but then I'd also be like sourcing all of the like guitar driven stuff myself. And it was just this, yeah, great amalgamation of everything. Absolutely. So to break my own rules and sort of then ask about what your parents were listening to, I'm actually curious of that because obviously the two different styles of music that you play professionally, I was curious if you were raised with like the Neil Young sort of stuff around you, like more singer songwriter stuff. Was that introduced to you early on as well? Yeah. You know, it was more, it was more kind of rock, rock stuff. Like, um, well on both sides, my mom was more of like a, she just loved like R&B and smooth R&B and like my love of Sade comes from my mother. Like I can, I have this, like one of my earliest memories of watching somebody react to a song is, is like, I can picture my mom listening to Sade, you know, and like the face that she, you know, the face that everybody makes when they, I can picture my mom just feeling a Sade song, you know, and then correlating those two things is like hearing and watching what a, what a sound can do to somebody, you know, I think is really beautiful, you know? So it was Absolutely. like my mom, my mom and sister were listening to a lot of stuff like that. My, my sister was very into hip hop and R and B and like Mary J Blige and, and TLC and things like that. But then my dad was kind of, dad was kind of all over the place. Like, really loved like rock music, you know, like loved Santana and like, you know, like loved showing me like the Woodstock record or like the, uh, the band, you know, stuff like that. So it was a very like, and no, nobody in my house played music. They just all loved it. You know, that's awesome. That's like such a a great, like just pedigree of like all of the different styles of yeah. music that you could have been exposed to at such a young yeah, kid. Especially I was really as you lucky. De- yeah. Especially as you describe yourself as an inquisitive kid. So I'm sure yeah. you were just it was, wanting to it, take it, was, it all in. It was nice to have like such a music loving environment for me to like realize like I was also part of that. You know what I mean? Like it was like I was the young one, but you know, because sometimes I think you grow up and your family does something and you're like, oh, I'm not into that whatsoever. Right. You know, yeah, but you rebel against it. Yeah. Like my, yeah. my folks all loved just Elvis and country. And I had no interest in that until I got sure. older. And now when yeah. as you get older, then all of a sudden you're like, OK, I actually makes sense to you. Yeah, it's all it's all much better than I gave it credit to. Although my yeah. mom did like a lot of the really bad 90s country. Uh, sure, that, yeah. I, I don't know that I connect with that stuff as much, but I'll hear a song every now and again, and it'll take me back like a Dwight Yoakam guitars, Cadillacs, oh, yeah. some song like that. And I'll be like, you know what? It's actually pretty good. <laughs> Dude, my, my, I, t- I went and saw Garth Brooks with my parents when I was really young, like in the, when he was the biggest thing in the world in the nineties. Yeah. And it was awesome. It was awesome. I like, bet. You know, I was probably 14, maybe if, like if I think about it and it was, yeah fire hose on the crowd smashing acoustic like it was just like that's a rock show it was an absolute rock show yeah yeah (laughs) um i had read that the first album that you bought uh was dirt from allison chains that's like the first record that you bought like with your own money yeah i remember because my mom so it came out on my 12th birthday so it's oh shit it's 1992 september 29th 1992 and um I was already, like I said, I was kind of already really into grunge, you know, like 
Nirvana, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam had, had really kind of taken hold of me. I was lucky we had much music in, in Canada, which was sort of our MTV was incredible, was an incredible source for just finding new music. It really was. Uh, it was one of the only sources we had, you know, in those, in those times. So I had seen all these, you know, I'd seen these songs and these videos and had, had fallen in love with it. But knowing that the new Alice in Chains was coming out that day, it was like my mom took me to the mall, you know, and I, she'd, I'd gotten like a $20 bill or something. And I was like, I'm going to buy my yeah. first CD. You know? So I'm, cu- I'm curious. So like, were your siblings, did, did they, were they like, had they bought, uh like the nirvana cds and pearl jam like was that stuff around but it wasn't like your own personal copy of something was yeah, that sort of the yeah. deal exactly yeah or it was like a bot for me from totally from, you know mom took me cd shopping or something but this was like i remember it just being like i've got the money and it's out i would like to go spend this on that yeah you know what i mean so obviously that has sentimental attachment to you. I'm curious though, as an Alice in Chains fan myself, where do you land these days? What is, what's your go-to record these days? Is this, is it still dirt? Dirt is just still like, it is perfect to me. Yeah. And I think it gets more perfect as I get older. Like, I don't know what it is. I, I, maybe the songs are, they hit me differently now. Cause I'm, you know, I'm not 12 years old and have, you know, having no understanding of what Lane and Jerry are singing about, but just yeah, being so moved by it. But now I'm like, you know, I've lived a life and I'm like, holy fuck, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that still dirt is still my, it's just my, I it's, my it's a great, it's a great shout. I love Jar of Flies. And I think it's because I was already like, I owned Facelift for whatever reason. I don't think I ever owned dirt which is so weird to me that i just don't think i ever owned a copy of that as a kid but i own facelift um but then jar of flies just hit me so much because there was that creepy video uh that was all like the claymation or whatever video yeah. uh what song was that for it was for is it i stay away i think it's for i it is for i stay is, away that's yeah. the weird one yeah yeah the suit it's like circusy or something like yeah. that Um, and obviously that was like the time when like the tool sober video, like videos were just getting creepy and weird and just made me feel awkward. So I think that's why I attach it. But also I'm curious to hear your take on this too. Um, cause you and I are close in age, dude, the two songs that are on the last action hero soundtrack from them. Oh my God. What the hell have I is, is if rain, when I rain, when I die is my favorite Alice in Chains song, but my second favorite Alice in Chains song is what the hell have I, of course that riff is oh unbelievable oh yeah yeah dude so oh, man. yeah being like an arnold fan and then all of a sudden you get this like really fun movie that has this fucking killer soundtrack like yo the megadeth yeah. song on that is super good the oh, acdc the, stuff the fishbone song swim is so good yeah, like, absolutely it's so heavy i i somebody needs to cover that song like to do a real good cover of, of fishbone swim but anyways oh man I digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so did you ever get to, I mean, I, not to jump ahead, but I saw later in your career, you got to play with Alice in Chains, which is fucking incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm curious, did you get to see them when you were younger? 
I never got to see them with Lane, which is like one yeah. of the, a big a big heartbreaks for me. I was I was lucky enough to see like when I was young, like if you wanted to get to like the first show question. Yeah, what's what was your first concert? Yeah. The first real one was I got to go see Neil Young with Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Blues Traveler. If you can think about that lineup real quick. Uh I, it's so funny when you're older and you've been in this world like you and I have. It just my first reaction to that is like, okay, so they put Blues Traveler on there because that sounds, I guess, a little more closer to Neil Young to a booking agent sentimentality. But also, right. they want that Pearl, they want that alternative rock audience to come out yeah. to this show too. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, man. but so this was this was in the early '90s when. How old would I have been? I was 14, right? 13 or 14. And uh, Neil took all three of those bands out on tour. And it was like a big stadium tour. And my, um, I had like a real good couple of pals that I uh, had sort of grown up with. And we had grown into super music fans and um, their, their dad, they were brothers. Their dad was like, I'm going to get tickets to this show. I want to see Neil. I know you guys want to see Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. He's like, I'll, and it was at, it was in, um, it was in Toronto at the, what's called the CNE. It's like the exhibition place. It's not really a venue anymore. They still do like a, a summer kind of like basically summer carnival there, but it used to be the only place that you could do like a show like that in the Toronto area. And so we, we got to go see that and I'll never forget like uh, Chris Cornell came out and he had, had just shaved his head and everybody thought it was a different singer because he shaved oh, wow. off the like yeah. the Jesus Christ pose hair and then he started <laughs> singing and, and it was like oh no that's absolutely Chris Cornell you know and then wow. yeah Pearl went right before Pearl Jam came on the entire uh, bowl just rushed the general admission because they, you know, it was Pearl Jam, and they were the biggest thing in the world, and yeah, all these kids were like couldn't afford general admission tickets or something, and then not like rut. Re- re- it was amazing. Like, That's man, what an incredible first show! Did yeah. they do? And I have, I have to, I'm curious. Did they do Hunger Strike? Because they were both there together. They did, and they did uh, uh, Pearl Jam, and then like they did Rockin' in the Free World with. I was that was with, my next question. Yeah, man, it was like. It was such a moving experience to to see when I was that young and and to be, I feel like even though I was young, I was already smitten. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like if I look yeah. back, I I can look at my life and go, yeah, no, it, 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 like I said earlier, it sunk its teeth in pretty early. So I was really observing everything I was seeing. You know, like, yeah, damn, not like not in the way that like I thought at 13 years old that one day I'll be playing in a right of course a band you know but it was like it was moving me more than anything else um I also now I'm curious how many conversations do you think like Chris Cornell had with John Popper (laughs) (laughs) well see I don't know like they were blues traveler it was they had they had that song what was that song they had that was was it run around it was run around thank you yes so I think they were probably, yeah, they were either, you know, if you think about the bill, they might've been the, like the, the label favor add on. Yes. 1000%. You know, like somebody yeah. was like, we got to put blues traveler on. 
yeah. uh, first. I, first of four. <laughs> I have a uh, someone that's toured with us. Uh, one of his first gigs was having to do sound for Blues Traveler. And it's some of the funniest, craziest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. Like I'm apparently sure. John Popper always has a sword on him. I was going to say, is he like a big weapons guy? Big <laughs> weapons guy, yeah. Tours with a lot of guns, which you're just like, oh my God, so stressful. Oh my um, God. Yeah, they're, they're, the story, yeah, they're probably best off mic, but there are some of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my life where I was like, this okay. sounds like such chaos. Well, I look um, forward to hearing them at a later date. Yeah, totally. So uh, before we move on, because whenever I talk to somebody who's in our age, age range that was present and big fans i'm curious where were you when you found out that kurt had passed uh was i i was in st Catharines still obviously i was with my friend lynn thompson who uh she had like we'd grown up together kindergarten i had a couple of friends that were just like we, you know we were we were experiencing all of that music together you know yeah and uh yeah, I remember just being at home. I think my sister maybe told me, my older sister had told me. And yeah, I felt, I I remember my, my friend Lynn who just bawling her eyes out, you know, cause she was one of the millions of girls who just like had felt whatever the thing that he did to everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever that was for everybody. And uh, yeah, I, I remember it just being so heavy. You know, and I remember not understanding it, right? You just kind of still too young to really even understand how somebody could do that or somebody who seemed successful or whatever that the whole trope of like, oh, you don't need to be upset about anything. You're the most popular guy in the world or all right. that bullshit, right? So, yeah, I just remember it being just heavy and feeling like, a loss. You know? Yeah. I, you know, I've dissected it more and more as I've gotten older. And I feel like for a lot of us, it was sort of the first glimpse at like a loss of innocence. You know what I'm saying? Where like, it was, a, it was the first really big famous person that yeah. we all had some sort of attachment to love for. And then yeah. to have to just somehow comprehend that. And if you maybe don't have parents that are, as receptive to how big that is to you you know it's like a lot of us had to sort of deal with that grief and understand it on our own you know yeah which is an interesting well, aspect that i've thought about a lot as i've gotten older too right and you think about the idol worship aspect of it too right like where we we were of this age like i always tell people that i was i was absolutely sold the dream of rock music you know like i got when i was younger i was i was an absolute perfect candidate for these people to <laughs> yeah to uh sink their teeth into you know and you you then you 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 lose this thing or you lose this person and you're too young to understand the real life aspect of it at all too so you're just all, you're, like you said you're dealing with this idea of grief that you don't even understand you don't even know what what it is and and it's a stranger you know, who you've just like sort of like fallen for because of what they've given to you or what you think they've given to you with music. And it's, right. it's really, it's convoluted as totally. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. 
and your information is coming from you know the mtv tabloids or whatever the situation is so it's like yeah the the information coming at you is also really confusing because you don't quite understand what to what to make of any of it you know what i'm saying yeah yes. like there's a chance that some of us had lost a grandparent or something like that but even still it's like a totally different feeling and scenario yeah it's just it's an interesting thing to sort of think about as you get older and how that plays into uh the way we look at famous people the way we look at all of these different things you know it's yeah i i was i don't think this is speaking out of school but um when i toured with alice in chains i you know i i didn't want to bring up anything about lane and mike sure. i just yeah. wanted you know i didn't even know if i would talk to to jerry and sean at all when i first got on the tour and then they were immediately just the best dudes ever that's cool um, to hear. which, which obviously awesome. made me feel really good because i was yeah. like okay, this you know like yeah this is the band that made me want to be in a band and now i'm touring with them and they're the best so but I remember talking to Sean about it one night. We it just sort of the, the conversation had kind of like shifted towards that, and he said something that I'll never forget. He said, he, "He's like, you know, people think they can come up and talk to me about the worst thing that's ever happened in my life because they know about it, you know." And that that was something where like it. Now, of course, oddly enough, months later, I would lose my best friend and I would then write a whole record about it. And that's what I'm touring doing. And I'm, I'm, I'm open to talking about it. Right. But when he said it to me that way, I'd never thought about it that way. Right. I don't, I was there to, you know, I wanted to talk about Lane because I loved, he's one of the reasons I sing. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it was Sean's best friend. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and it's like that whole aspect of it, like it's something to us, but it's not that to them, you know, the people that were in, in their lives and things like that. So that, that's again, convoluted, I think is a great way to describe how, uh, how we, how we are with our emotions and how we look at these people, how we put these people up to a place that not necessarily everybody wants to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. It's a, it's a relatable and heavy subject. Yeah, absolutely. Like us writing an entire record about the loss of my mom, you, the loss of your yeah. friend, like it's one of these things where, yeah, you, I, I always say like, I can never fault somebody for wanting to come talk to you about it because they likely have experienced something like that too. I think we're in a different, a little bit of a different thing than, thousand because they they probably just want to be like yo lane was fucking sick and like they're not yeah. there's no tact there but right. but yes. like if someone wants to come talk to you and i about loss or something like that it's like i always say like i can never fault somebody for you know how they approach that and like whatever else because they're probably wanting to you know they relate to it or something like that but um, yeah and we're, we're like we're actively yes we're actively using the medium in order to help ourselves, which then to not be able to speak to somebody about that process of it is like, we would be, I don't know. Right. But then at the same time, it's you know, like, it's, yeah, th there's not always the tact 
of people realizing that like maybe in that moment it's hard for us to have oh. that conversation too <laughs> you know what i'm of saying of course of course yes oh yeah. god yes yeah oh my so, god i couldn't understand that more yeah i'm really sure you could. and i can make an entire podcast specifically <laughs> about can. that subject no tableside um, manners should i say yeah. that it'll be called tableside manners with dal and jeremy <laughs> 1000 percent. we're starting the show yeah. next week let's do it okay um, so uh I had read that your first instrument was piano. You mentioned you were playing guitar really early, um, but was piano actually first? No. Is that like a, that's a good Wikipedia lie. There I you think, go. Probably. There you go. Okay. So yeah. guitar was oh, first. Guitar to, yeah, from the very beginning. Um, I've never really taken, I took lessons a little bit, like a couple of years. I wasn't, the theory it didn't do anything for me. And I don't mean that I'm like a snobby about it. I just, my brain doesn't remember going back to the technology thing. <laughs> yeah. It was the same with stuff like that. Like there were certain ways that my brain was just not going to like grasp onto. Yeah. But as soon as my guitar teacher started to show me how to listen to something and figure it out by ear, like it showed me like writing you know, and it was, it was bringing in like Pearl Jam cassettes and stuff and going like, I want, I need to be able to play along to this, you know, and I don't know how to do it. And he gave me those tools. I stopped taking lessons and just went into the bedroom, you know, and tried to play it, figure out and play along to everything. Man, you picked a hard band to want to play along to. That is some, <laughs> yeah. like some, some of the best shredding of the nineties oh, for sure. Like the Alice in Chains stuff too was like, that was the real clincher for me. Like learning Jerry's parts and getting to play along with him. Like Alexis, we play our guitars half step down from standard tuning, yeah. right? That's just how we always have written because yeah. when I joined the band, my guitars were always half step down because I learned, because Alice in Chains plays half step down from standard. And oh. so my guitars would just be half step down to play along to Jerry. And then when I started writing, I just started writing and half step down from standard tuning. So my first yeah. band was that. And then when I showed up to Alexis practice, I was like, I wrote a song, it's in this tuning. And we've remained in that ever since. And it's because Jerry plays in half step down. That's amazing. I love that little tidbit. <laughs> that's super cool. I think that's our tuning too, but I don't want to speak completely out of school. I'm pretty sure that's our tuning as well. Okay, I'm yeah. Pretty sure. Um does uh do you remember the first song you learned how to play along to? I don't. I, I must have been like if I think about it, I probably asked to play like the riff from Alive or something. You know, <laughs> brr, 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 yeah, something like that. Like was probably like, I need to know how to do this. And, and I don't I can't hear it myself, you know. So my guitar teacher would listen and you know, rewind, fast forward, rewind, fast forward. And, and Until then you got it, it. Was, yeah. And then it was just kind of realizing and developing the, the ear. I remember really green days, dookie, that record coming out, the, learning to play all those songs was such good practice. Right. Cause it was pretty simple as far as like, if you knew how to do some bar chords. Yeah. But the songwriting was just so spectacular. Right. That you're, that was a real, I remember that being like a real good record for me to play along to when I was younger. That's a really good shout. I've talked to drummers on this podcast before that often cite the Blue Album from Weezer as... I was going to 
Yeah. As like something to play along to because in the same sort of respect, though Green Day has, you know, well, I was gonna say Weezer has more technical sort of like solo-y and stuff like that, but it's like, it's so, for a drummer, it's so straightforward. And that's yeah. sort of, I feel like the same way with guitar for Dookie, where it's like, here's some power chords. You probably, you got 90% of the song alone just yeah. with that, you know? I would say learning the the songs on the blue record too was really just great. Like, you know, once you got yeah. them, they, they were there and it was just totally fun to just jam to, you know what I Yeah, mean? yeah. What was your first guitar? My, my dad got me this, like, um, well, my view, like my first real guitar, like my first guitar that would, I would call was like a, I felt like I had gotten a guitar. Sure. Cause yeah. I, I remember like the, my dad got me like an amp guitar combo at like a midnight magnet sale for like a hundred bucks. That was like, you know, like a little five watt amp and a, almost a toy guitar. You know? Yeah, sure. And we still, we still have it. I, was, um, was, I always love to ask that. It's so funny. Yeah. Like, what, uh, I had interviewed Laura Jane Grace on here, and we talked about how it's funny that the often introduction for someone playing guitar is like parents wanting to give their kids something kind of just cheap so they could just like just to see if they'll hold on to it. But yeah. it's funny how it's funny how that's almost counterintuitive because often the cheap thing is the hardest thing to play, where it hurts your fingers. 100%. It's really difficult to like actually make chords sound good so in a yeah. way it, it it's it, it's like you understand why parents do it but at the same time it's like counterproductive because it could make a kid give up really quickly absolutely yeah yeah couldn't agree more yeah but the my my first guitar guitar was i think after a couple of years of actually playing and where my parents thought okay he seems to be doing it every day yeah he's pushing you it know, through. Like, <laughs> let's get him uh let's get him something there was a, a, a real short-lived Fender model called a Fender Prodigy that well, was I've sort of like heard of that. Yeah, you can you can look it up. There's not it was only in production for a couple of years. And it's sort of like a strat, but it had a it's a little smaller of a body and it had a humbucker in the bridge. There was a humbucker and two single coils. And I remember reading um I loved Guitar World, obviously. And there was a, a little feature on, you know, hum. Oh the yeah. Band hum. Absolutely. Great yeah. Um, I have a framed poster right here. Of, okay. Of great. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they had a little feature on like a one page feature on hum. And I had loved the, I think only the first rec, the only the first record was out by then or maybe. Well, the, the first the, major, the, so the first one is electric 2000, but the, you'd prefer an astronaut. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, I caught myself there. I wasn't yeah. when I was saying the first record, but you'd prefer was out and like, you know, stars was big. And I remember I liked the band and I remember seeing they had little blurbs about what gear they use and the one guitar player in hum. And you can go back and watch them play on like Saturday night live. And he's playing a fender prodigy. It's like this smaller strat. And I, wow, I thought that was cool. And then my dad found one, like I didn't want one. I didn't know. And my dad got me this, it was, he went to the music store and got me a Fender for, for my birthday as like a, you know, and I think he got sold the like new Fender model by the store guy. Yeah. 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 But, but he came home with it and I was like, Oh my God, you know, like I just read about this. That's amazing. And, uh, so I had that for, yeah, I had, that was my first like cool 
what felt like I was playing a real guitar. Yeah, That's it was a white, a white. Awesome. I have a I have a photo of me in my bedroom playing it, wearing an Alice in Chains shirt. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> like, it's yeah, it's it's perfect. Uh, whenever hum gets brought up on the podcast it's only been like once or twice uh i love to regale my guest with this story because it still blows my mind today so we did two records with brad wood who did electra 2000 um their first record and yeah. i remember talking to him about you prefer an astronaut and he told me what that album title means do you have any idea no. i'd love to tell you okay i'd so, love to hear it it's right. Th like, it's one of these things where I don't, it's not as clear as they probably thought it was, but I love this. So, um, obviously the cover is green and has a zebra on it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So in a lot of children's books, uh, when you're learning the alphabet, Z is often zebra, right? So it's basically the title is saying you'd prefer this, but you got this. So you, so <laughs> astronaut would be often a Z would be yes. zebra. So you'd prefer an astronaut, but here it is with the zebra on the cover. Isn't that awesome? Wow. I have no, absolutely no idea. Same. I, like, I wish I could have seen my face when Brad told me that story because I love that record so much. And I was just like, it's oh, so good. Yeah. Oh, because it's such a weird cover, you know? Yeah. Weird band. Yeah, <laughs> Straight up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. fuck. How good is Downward is Heavenward? Uh, unbelievable. It's so good. I don't. Yeah. People don't talk about it enough. I I completely agree. Yeah. They yeah. uh, the frame poster that I have is when uh, our record stage four was coming out. We the record release shows we did were co-headline shows with Hum, which I was like, I can't believe this is happening. So we played That's LA amazing. and we played New York, and I was just like, I I don't even understand how this is happening. And That's of course, so you cool. know, you know Nick. Obviously, you've worked with him a ton. Um, the show posters for it are um like the collage thing from our stage four record but mixed with one of them has uh, a bike from our first record and then one of them has a zebra kind of a deal amazing yeah it's like he mixed the artwork of of both but it's just like the coolest shit i just couldn't believe for us that was like my alice and james moment where i was just like i yeah. can't believe this band that i love so much as a kid this is happening oh my god that's you know that's beautiful right it's the uh... It's really, it's really beautiful when you get to experience things like that. And they were just so, you could tell that they were unaware because it was like they were some of their first shows back in a while, like that they were unaware of the impact that their records had on people of like the young, you know, people that are into bands like nothing and stuff like that, like how yeah. they've all loved them so much that like there's this like quiet hardcore kid audience for them that they had no idea existed. You know, I, I remember when we, we toured with, you remember Hope's Fall? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. We they toured, did that record with Matt. Yeah. Talbot, right. We toured with Hope's Fall a couple of times back when we were younger and I'll never forget seeing them. Like we'd already known them. And then I remember seeing them after they had made that record with Matt. And I was just so like, just enamored by the fact that they could find him and get him <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Do you know totally. what I mean? Like, yeah, like, it was the coolest thing. Yeah. To... Yeah. Anyways, great, great band. Hey there. Do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. 
For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. What was your first band? What was the first band you ever did? My first band was a band called uh, Needle Park after uh, Panic at Needle Park, the Al Pacino movie. (laughs) Wow. Um, My friend Garrett, who played drums, it was me and my friend Garrett and my friend Marcel. Uh, Marcel was a skateboarding buddy and Garrett was uh, a guy I met through a music uh, a music friend in high school it was his his friend from a different high school who just happened to be like this really creative incredible drummer guitar player just a whiz kid and so the three of us started this band and Garrett came up with the band name which I thought was cool and um, we were kind of like we were young but we were st- we were trying to write our own songs you know like I I feel like I was trying to write my own songs f- when I was really young so this would have been like, I was probably 16 and we kind of mostly did like um, instrumental kind of stuff. Like this was kind of before I realized I could sing or wanted to sing or had really um, found a way to feel comfortable singing, mm. you know? So sure. I was I was really like, as much as I was... I was so enamored by Jeff Buckley and Lane Staley and, and these powerful voices and singing along to them in my bedroom. I wasn't really comfortable trying to do it. So I was sort of more like in this band, we were really influenced by like, it was like Mogwai, you know, we were just trying to make like long atmospheric. Like post-rocky sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, like I, we had, I just really loved Mogwai and bands like that. And like, um, um did you so ever end was, up singing in the band or was it always I instrumental? Did. I did actually we started to do covers for fun because we we get we'd get like these shows and so we'd like like I remember there there's a great Canadian indie band called Tristan Psionic from okay. the late 80s and early 90s. They were part of a You ever heard about Sonic Onion Records from no, Hamilton Ontario? No, I'm unfamiliar. You should do some digging on Sonic Onion. There's some really, really good Canadian bands that that were on that label. Um, Tristan Psionic was like this, this sort of like Sonic youthy type band, I guess would be the most derivative way to compare it to something. Yeah. But so I got my this band I was playing and we we got asked to or we got to open for them at a bar in St. Catharines. And so we did all instrumental covers and then, but then we covered Remedy by the Black Crows. <laughs> and I, and I sang that because I love, we love the Black Crows too. It was, yeah. a, it was a very, from an early age of, I've been, I've been, you know, different sides of the spectrum all at yeah. once. Yeah. Know? I feel but like then, that's uh, also a, like kind of a, an image of what the nineties rock world was to a lot of us where we weren't, so rigid in our taste you know yeah where it's like you can like nirvana you can like green day you could like metallica yeah. you could like 
fucking the wallflowers you can like goo goo dolls you know it's like yeah. it all you know and of course black crows that makes it you yeah. can mix that in there as well. it wasn't really if you think about it, it wasn't really until i got into like real hardcore punk that i found out about all the rules <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's funny the thing that you that you would think would make you the most open-minded actually makes you more of a kind of a yeah. dick about things <laughs> yeah it's interesting but so that was the, yeah, that was like the first band and we just kind of, and then we kind of just evolved and started playing all different types of songs. And, um, eventually it kind of made sense that we would stop playing and cause Mars, my friend Marcel and I really wanted to like, I think we really wanted to try to write our own songs and like sing and stuff. And Garrett was just not really interested in, he was, he was like too he was too savantish to like want to realize how good he was in a way, not a bad way. He just like, he was yeah. like, yeah, I, I, I do this too. And I do that. And I write and I paint and I, I'm whatever, you know, whereas yeah. Mars and I were like, we wanted to see if we could be in a band or something. You so know? what was the first concert you ever played? What was the first show you ever played? I want to say it was, it was like, it would have been just like we had probably just rented a like it was in that band for sure. Like I said, we yeah. played like, you know, we played at bars a couple of times. And so I can't remember if it, it the Tristan Cyanic show would have been like the first one. Or I think we probably would have just played some open mic night before that, you know. But that was my first in instance, like playing with a band who was touring. So, you know, you obviously were sold the rock dream as a young kid and now you're playing guitar and now you have a band and now you're playing in front of people. Do you remember how it felt though early on like that to play in front of people? Like, was it what you were hoping? Do you remember being excited? Were you, did you find yourself being nervous that you were maybe not realizing was going to happen? I, I, I think I always loved it. You know, I don't think I've ever really felt too nervous. Um, and I think that is mostly because this is where I, it's where I feel most comfortable. And I think I always have, you know, now, like, have I felt uncomfortable on stage? Yes. Many times. And, but I, I never equate it to being nervous. I think it's just, I'm sometimes an uncomfortable person, hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So I think, but like, if I can think back to when I first started actually like trying to sing my own songs in front of people, even like when I would play, you know, I, I, I started playing just solo by myself at, with an acoustic guitar at coffee shops when I was really young, you know? So as much as it was like nerve wracking to a degree, I always felt like I could go out and do it. You know, there was always huh. that. And it's, you know, it, it, it's an, it's almost like an indescribable kind of feeling that you have to have in order to like, I'm, I'm willing to go out and, and just present my, myself, you know, be vulnerable. And like, if it goes well, incredible, that's the best feeling ever. But if it doesn't, I'm, I'm willing to put myself out there to do it. Totally. You know? Yeah. So what so, was, yeah, that's, that's what I feel. If, if I can like dig back and remember, like it was always, there was always a want to go and, and sing my, sing for my supper, you know? Right. Yeah uh what was the first band that you recorded with my next band which was which was with um mars my the, the guy from needle park and then my cousin nick who played drums 
we started our a band called Helicon Blue. And that was the band that like, that's where I met all the Alexis dudes playing our bands playing together. And, you know, that was like, I sort of just graduated high school or was about to gra- I would guess I was still in high school when we started, but it was like, we made, you know, we recorded an EP of our own music in my basement on like a, a digital four track that my cousin had taken from high school. And, you know, we pressed them ourselves and played shows and sold them, you know, and like. So is that the, because I, I, I checked that band out. And firstly, I mean, the fact that you were making that music at such a young age is really impressive. And like the, <laughs> the, the style of music for, it just, it seems like something that you would get into when you're much older. Cause like for me, when I heard it, it kind of had like a red house painters sort of sure. coding or, you know, radio heady sort of slow core yeah. vibe to it. Well, Was that what you were going for? I think, okay, well, me and, me and Mars were really into all of that stuff, you know, we loved the slow core stuff and like, and bedhead and things like that. Totally. I think it was sort of like coming out of our Mogwai, no, like just instrumental kind of spacey stuff. So it was like transitioning from that into kind of wanting to sing and write melodies and poetry and stuff like that so it was kind of melding but also my love of like like melodic rock music was there too right like as a kid playing guitar like there was moments where I just wanted to be loud all of a sudden like thinking about hum or or chains or stuff like that you know it was all kind of I think too because I was I was still young it was still that I was still trying to figure out how I I would like to present my ideas, right? So you're, I think I was, Mars included, we were just emulating a lot of what we had listened to, trying to mm. find yeah. find a way to write a song that felt like your own. You know? So this, the recordings that I heard of that band, that, which I'm assuming was the EP, that was the thing that you recorded yourself? Well, there's two, there, we made, we actually made two. We made two four song EPs, if I remember. One of them was, it's a blue, like a blue cover. And we recorded all those songs in my parents' basement. And then there there was like a four song one that we recorded in a studio on a weekend, like where okay. we had met a guy who was like, I'll record your band. <laughs> and we were yeah. like, cool, you know, and went to a studio and, and like. What was that experience yeah. like for you? Like you actually it was to the awesome. studio for the first time. Yeah. It was awesome, right? It was like, again, it was like, I was young. uh, I was very driven. Um, I knew that about myself. And so it felt like the thing I wanted to do, or at least give a, like, like the, it felt like the thing I wanted to try to be good at was happening in a way, right? Not necessarily like, it wasn't like I felt like it was happening. It was just like, okay, I'm, again, it's like that want to go out and do it. So I was, I got the opportunity to go to a studio. I'm here. I'm see what I can make out of it. You know, do you remember falling in love with it or were you nervous in that situation? Did it, was it not what you expected? Was it what you expected? It was not what I expected at all, you know, because 
I had I had made music, I'd recorded music, but it, recording in your basement versus then going into a professional studio and having like listening to yourself back and um it's always you know, that be- the first time. <laughs> oh fuck. That began the real lifelong tumultuous relationship I've had with you know, listening to my own voice <laughs> where yeah. you understand that it's like if you are you know if you have any sense of doubt whatsoever, it it can be a struggle to just like allow yourself to make it easy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you find yourself being anxious at all singing in a vocal booth, like with people kind of like watching and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, of course. You know, again, like it was around, it was around the time too, where I had really started to sing a lot. And I like, I felt like I could sing but I was still like 19, 18 years old and I, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to. And totally, I was still in that, you know, like I feel like I can do this, but I'm self-taught and I'm, you know. Was the guy recording you giving you any sort of pointers or was he just like there to hit record and get paid? He he was like, it, it, it's funny. His name was Greg Below and he ended up actually like starting Oh, you worked the with lab- him a lot, right? Yeah, he started the label that we would end up putting the first Alexis record out on and like I met him in my first band but then he when we broke up and Alexis started and he kind of came to see us and introduced us to some other people so he he was in our life for the a, a bunch of years there but he was he was just like a big old metal dude yeah you know so his pointers weren't very subtle and they weren't very helpful they were more just like, you know, yeah. don't sing as high and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, you had mentioned that around that time you met the guys that you'd end up being in Alexis on Fire with. Um, so they were they playing in another band at the time? Yeah, they were all in uh, different bands. Like Wade and Chris were in, um, they've like been in each other's lives since they were like eight you know, they like played hockey together. Then they started a band together when they were 13. Then they started another band together after that. Then they started Alexa on Fire. <laughs> so it's like yeah. they were in a band at the time when I first met those two, they were in a band called Plan 9, um, which then morphed into sort of more, more like an, an emo band called After the Hallowed Moment. Goodness. You know? Yeah. And that's when our band started playing together. You know, yeah. and then Georgie was played bass in a like a kind of a, I guess sort of like a, a at the Gatesy inspired metal band called uh, Condemning Salem. Okay. He he it's played bass name. in that. Yes, they were they were hard. George was <laughs> George was it, it was yeah you George was the one who you knew was going to be moshing at shows. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And then Jesse, our first drummer, he played in a, a a punk band as well. And so it was like we were all kind of bands in this Niagara, Southern Ontario scene. Yeah. You know, so this would have been like 99 through to 2001, where we were all kind of like actively playing in bands. And so what was it? Was there just like, who who was the catalyst to be like, hey, maybe we should all get together and try to write something? Uh, it was Wade. Okay. He, 
so like our bands had played together we me and wade had started to kind of you know know each other he was a little younger than me but wade was very uh industrious when he was younger so he would he would throw put on a lot of shows um like he'd have his band play and then get a bunch of bands from around to play and you know as like a 17 year old kid like just like trying to get the chinese food restaurant to give him the hall for the weekend for nothing yeah. you know yeah and, yeah yeah and it worked but so he my band was just kind of fizzling out and i called him to be like uh are you doing any shows like i'd love to have the band play one of them or whatever and he he said i'm actually I'm actually thinking about starting a different band with a bunch of people from other bands. Uh, do you want to come jam? And I said, yeah. And so we went, that was it. The first, like he called or I called him, he asked me about that and me and him and Jesse, uh, our drummer, we jammed. And that was the sort of beginning of Alexis steel came the next day. Cause he was, for the next time because he had been working and then wade sort of just said like i want george to be the singer like george from condemning salem and we were like okay and george was like i don't i don't know how to sing you know yeah. and wade was like no 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 like we just want you to because again george was like he was a flamboyant dude like he was a he was a cool like arty looking kid but he like when he played bass and Salem, he was nuts. He was doing guitar swings and then, you know, he'd be moshing for every band. And it was like Wade just sort of saw this. I think Wade just saw that George should be on a stage in front of people. Totally. More than more than he knew if George could scream or shout or do anything. So Wade was kind of the one who just kind of put the pieces together. And yeah. Right. Uh, were you interested it's funny it's a funny question but like knowing you know from this conversation knowing the music you make city in color the music that was in helicon blue like how interested in, were you in the style of music that alexis on fire ended up playing like was it something that you adapted to or were you already into so much of that stuff like i think about no, I, a band like grade being like maybe sure. an influence for you guys because of the style of music that they were doing early on that you know alexis on fire i feel like grew from uh that's from an outside assumption i don't know how wrong i yeah. am about that but like Odd, oddly enough none of us were real this is no slight to grade at all sure we sure. none of us were really big grade fans but we were all we were all into hardcore and punk and and screamo and stuff that was a bit like more aggressive i i had just like as far as me when i came to me like wanting to write yeah, and what I what I also came maybe even thought I was capable of writing was the music I had been sort of playing that sort of atmospheric melodic rock stuff. You know, it was just sort of what was coming out of me. So when Wade actually kind of wanted to start this band, the other part of it that was appealing to me was that there was no real, there was no real direction. It was just like his idea was like, let's put all these people who are all into a bunch of different stuff and do a bunch of different stuff and just see what kind of comes from it, you know? Totally. And I would say the two bands really that were like the, the most, like, I guess like you could say were our spirit animals were, um, Monin for sure. Like 
Monine from Brampton, Ontario, who were like, I guess they would have been on Vagrant by then. Maybe yeah, no, not, not yet. Yeah. They weren't on Vagrant yet, but Monine was, was like, to us, it was bigger than grade because it was, there was more melody to it, but it was the, uh, like the passion that, that it seemed like Monine were putting into the music was something that we couldn't like look away from, you mm. know? Yeah. And like my, my band Helicon had gotten to play with Monine and St. Catharines when they came through on a tour. And it was like this real thing in Southern Ontario. Like if you had a chance to go see Monine play on the weekend, you did. Cause it was like, it was an experience, you know? Yeah. And then I would say from more of a, an aggressive standpoint, yet still with a lot of melody to it was uh, taken from, from Southern California because they had, they had signed to a label in Hamilton. Goodfellow, so they, right? Yeah, Goodfellow, right? So they played around our area. And so the they developed this really weird relationship with the people from Southern Ontario because, you know, there weren't a lot of bands like them from California making it all, all the way to yeah. us. So I think for us all, seeing bands like that, when we kind of started to w come up with whatever Alexis would be, it was really driven by this idea of uh of passion and energy and throw everything into the into the middle of the room and see kind of what sticks and that was what was appealing to me so it was like i had never really attempted to write anything in that vein specific to 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 that style of music but being put in the room with the other guys and just having the freedom to try things really showed me that, oh, okay, I, I can do, I can kind of access this other part of my brain, yeah. you know, that I love that I just haven't really opened up yet, you know, and having like it be like, I can do a weird riff and then Wade would go, oh, I can play off of that. And then it evolved from there and me not having to think about it in terms of, I'm going to write a verse and a chorus and a, you know, just sort of like, we're just going to throw ideas at each other and see if we can build a song from it. Right, right, You right. know, that's kind of how it all started with that band. Totally. Uh, I love the Take and Shout. Uh, they were the first band that I ever got to do any sort of touring with where I sold merch for them. On, oh, no way. On a West Coast tour. That was my first time ever being in a van and whatever. I did like a, I did merch for them on like a, it was them and Poison the Well like just nice. going up the coast and I remember just falling in love with, with touring just in the sense yeah. of like, you know, I wasn't playing, but I just getting to hang out with this band that I love so much. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Did, uh, was Alexis on fire the first band that you toured with? Yes. Yeah. What was, we... what, well, actually before we get there, what was the first Alexis on fire show? First show we ever played was like a, like a Polish hall in Niagara Falls, uh, which is only like 15 minutes from St. Catherine. So it's basically yeah. like where we're from. Yeah. But yeah. It was like, it was like Silverstein and us and maybe a band, I think a band called race car from Niagara Falls. And, you know, it was some, I don't, some kid was like, and there was definitely like, I remember because all of us had come, we were all in bands before. Yeah. You know, everybody in the scene was like, oh, this is the band that's got all the guys from the other band. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that it's was a great like a promotion our first... tool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, 
but yeah, no, I remember that it was, a, that was the first show and it was, I remember it being great. Like, yeah, not great in the sense that we knew what we were doing, but it was just like, it was fun. I remember right away. It was fun. Yeah. You know? So then what, what, yeah. What was the first tour? First tour we ever did was with, we actually toured the States uh, without even having a record out, which was, you know, very smart. Um, <laughs> Wade got a Wade got some contact from a from a kid on a message board and he booked us a tour with Beloved. Do you remember Beloved? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh Remembering Never, R.I.P. Wow. Yeah, so, it was Okay, so me help me Pete. out. So you didn't uh, have a record out, but those are no. two bands that were obviously already touring. Touring and had records out yeah. and, and whatever else. How how does this make sense? I don't really know, to be honest. And I don't even know why we why we told ourselves that we could do it either. It's amazing. But we did. Like, yeah. Yeah. Wade was, again, Wade was very resourceful. And he met this kid who, if I remember correctly, he was from Virginia. And he was a, also a resourceful kid. And he was like, I'm booking a tour for Beloved and Remembering Never, like, two weeks down in, like, the, you know, sort of, like, eastern United States down down the, the seaboard a little bit and yeah we were like great yeah we'll come and do it <laughs> for like you know nothing and uh we got a van and we drove four hours over the border and our van broke down <sighs> and we had to be towed back to canada and we missed the first show but we rented a van drove straight all night and got there for the first show the second show in long island New York and went on tour. Had and you was been, like, had you been to the States yet ever? Uh, we had just, we had done a lot of like, cause we were lived pretty close to Buffalo and like oh, upstate true. New yeah, York. Yeah, yeah. We'd yeah. done like a lot of sneaking over the border to go play. Like, um, like we'd played with taken and curl up and die at a skate park. We had like snuck across to play a bunch of like, we played a basement coffee house with like majority rule. Oh my God. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Like we've got to play with majority rule a couple of times, which was just so amazing to watch the that band, band play. Like, Oh my God. Just oh like, my God. yeah. Just being like just an onslaught by a, a three piece. It was so good. Absolutely. But so we, you know, we had done and we had toured a bunch of like, we had, we had done a bunch of weekend warrior stuff, like driven up to Quebec and done a weekend and, you know, did we tried to go like everywhere we could go? Because uh, also uh, Wade and Steele and Jesse were all in high school still, so we could only me and George were were out of high school, but we could all, we could only kind of play on the weekends. But this tour, it got booked around um, March break, which is sort of like you know I think it's the same thing as your spring break. Sure, yeah, yeah, March, yeah, March break. So uh, the three of them were able to miss, like, because we couldn't tour or they would get expelled from high school for missing too much time. So this first tour we got booked happened to be like three weeks and two of the weeks were March break. So we they missed a week of school <laughs> and then the rest was, you know, their spring holiday was touring around in a van at 17 playing for nobody. Did you, did you find yourself taking to it? Like, did you enjoy it? Was it scary? Was it, how did you feel? Yeah, it was, it was terrifying. Like it was absolutely terrifying to be 
you know, kids from a small town in Canada driving a van around with an atlas, you know, right. and some some like uh, CAA directions that we got. Like it wasn't even MapQuest even yet. I don't think we were like probably didn't not, know yeah. that you could do that. Yeah. So it was a lot of like, um, yeah, we found our we asked our friend like there was a guy named Chris O'Toole who who was like the tattooed guy in the town who worked at the record store. We were like, do you want to come on the van with us? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he was like, do you ever listen to Damien from fucked ups podcast? Yeah. I have. Punk? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, yeah, he has, he does this thing called footnotes for every episode and it's him and this guy, Chris O'Toole and that's loons. We call him loons. He, oh, he wow. just got, he got in the van with us and we, yeah, we just went and, and tried it. Right. And it was, yeah, it was terrifying. I remember, the first night when we drove all night to to try to get to Long Island for the show the day next day the promoter said we could park outside of his out of his uh, mom's house and sleep in the van and we were like great and I'll never forget being woken up by a giant man with a gun on the knocking on the window and like just sort of like trying to get us to wake up and you know, we did like the, do we open the window? Do we open the window? Finally opened the window and it was a cop who we were parked outside of his mom's uh, house. And she had called him to say, there's this weird van of, of men sleeping outside of my, Oh my God, my house. So we, yeah, the first night of tour, we got woken up by a cop with a gun and we were like, okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, those were the, those, those yeah. were the things like you, you, you were too young to realize how dangerous it was. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and rose, you were, you rose know, tinted glasses. You're just like, oh, yeah, this is, yeah. <laughs> you were, in, I was in love with the idea of, and I still am like, that was for me, that's what I wanted when I was younger. Like when I saw Monine come through St. Catharines and, and realize that they had been on a tour, you know, they had just been like touring across Canada. Yeah. I was like, okay, it's possible. You know, that's yeah. all I wanted to do was just go and play. I just wanted to see what yeah. I could make of myself, you know? Totally. Totally. So, yeah. Talking to, uh, I've had, you know, a lot of people from, from Canadian bands on here. Uh, and I remember specifically talking to Stefan from, uh, from pup and him sort of talking about how hard it is for Canadian bands to start touring the U S just because of how expensive it is to even, get across the border and then yeah. you know especially if your band is playing like first of three you're only making you know especially in those times 100 bucks 150 bucks if, oh if we at we, best I don't, I don't even think we were making i think we yeah. were maybe getting 50 dollars if they had it totally you know like so the amount like, of times we we were given nothing you know i it's funny the other day i was and when i say the other day it was easily could have been two months ago but the yeah, other day sure. yeah i was walking on a street in Toronto and this kid stopped me kid. He was an adult male stopped me. Yeah. And he was like, are you Dallas green? I said, yeah. And he goes, man, I did the Alexis. Cause we, or the next tour we did was with taken. We did a tour across America with taken and between the buried and me and a band called it dies today from Buffalo. Yep. yep. So we did a whole like, month and a half long American tour again playing for nobody and he was like I did the Oakland show 
and I was like, oh, really? And he was like, yeah, you remember it was like that weird art space? And I was like, I do. And he goes, I'm sorry we didn't pay you that night. And I was like, wow, I don't even remember that you didn't pay us that night, but thank you for owning up to it or whatever. But like, Obviously, he's held on to that. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's what it was. It was, it was, you knew that these were things that you were signing up for, right? You were, you know, you'd, you'd hope you'd say, can somebody give us a place to stay? And hopefully somebody does. And if you don't, you know, you're sleeping in the van. Uh, Maybe one time you could get one hotel room, a Motel 6 to share. You've spent, you know, you had maybe $5 a day. It was just what we did. It was what we... I'm not saying that it's the best way to do it because I think looking back, I'm surprised that we got through so much of what we did, but you didn't really know any different, right? Like, I mean, it was just what we thought. You had nothing was... to compare it to. Yeah. You were just yeah. like, this is just what touring is. It's tough. But then when you get to play, it's actually, that's the part that yeah. makes it worth you hope, it. Yeah. You hope. Right? You hope the show's good. And then you're like, if it's good, it's going to get you through the next week or whatever. And yeah. Um, yeah, but it was, and I, I honestly, I don't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like I'm, I'm so glad that I started that way. I want to tell you about persistent vision records. They are a brand new label that has hit the ground running. They've just reissued two records from Screamo legends, page 99 the singles collection as well as document number eight which is an all-time personal favorite of mine but they're not just doing reissues they've also just released a split between habak and lagrimas who are two bands that i've absolutely got my eye on that are so good you can order these great releases directly through persistentvisionrecords.com or through deathwishinc.com give them a follow on instagram at persistent vision records so you don't miss out on what's coming next So that first record had come out in Canada and like, I think I saw like 2002, um, but then it got put out by Equal Vision a year later in 2003. Was it, do you think it was just like the legwork the band was obviously doing with all these tours and stuff like that, that got Equal Vision's attention to be like, oh, this is like a hardworking band, you know, let's work with them. And then obviously you work with them going forward. I think so. Yeah, it was, you know, there was also that really strange there was a strange little thing happening in Southern Ontario where all of these bands pretty much from like a 60 kilometer radius got signed up by a bunch of those American labels, right? Like Silverstein signed to victory and the end signed to relapse and Monine signed to vagrant and who else am I missing? Boys night out was on ferret records. Do you remember oh, that? Right. Yeah. So, and we were all this, all these bands from this one little area. And I think we were touring a lot and we were, we were starting to like, that was around when the kind of thing started happening in Canada where our, our videos started getting played on TV here. And I think we had, I think we had gone over to England a couple of times and yeah, I think Equal Vision just, I remember Dan, Dan Sancho still, still there. He came drove to St. Catharines. They drove from Albany, uh, which is where Equal Vision was. And yeah. a couple of them drove down and saw us play in St. Catharines. And they were like, yeah, we're, we're down. We want to, we want to help the band out. And I remember Wade and I, we like, we 
we really wanted to sign to Equal Vision almost just because we played Hellfest in Syracuse uh, in like 2002. Okay, yeah. And a bunch of a bunch of the Equal Vision bands like Bane and Converge played, and they had these huge Equal Vision stickers that were like the size of Marshall cabs on the back of their amps. Oh yeah. And like yeah. on road cases and stuff. And Wade and I just thought that that was the cool. We just wanted to set sign with equal vision so we could get those stickers yeah and yeah and put them on our hands <laughs> and uh it was like one of the first things we asked for when we got signed to them we we're like can we have the big stickers please <laughs> that's amazing so did you put them on your amps 100 percent. fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> still there really that's amazing yeah waits there's still a cab at our storage space that's got a big equal vision sticker on it yeah. oh i love that um yeah i you you know you've put out so many records i want to just jump ahead one uh, a little bit with alexis on fire to the crisis record because mm -hmm. uh i wanted to ask you about uh recording the song you burn first with garrett from uh planes mistaken for stars like yeah. i'm a big planes fan i feel like that song to when i you know when i revisit that song for me it sounds like you guys are also big planes fans and you just wanted to write a planes sounding song yeah. with garrett 100%. singing so talk yeah. to me about that experience and obviously Garrett rest in peace. What a, what a yeah. love, Fuck, lovely man. person. Yeah. What a, he's one of the most special people I ever got to meet doing this. So definitely rest easy. Um, we had the luxury of touring with, uh, uh, hot water music and planes in 2004. We did like a little leg of the new what next tour, And, um, I mean, I just credit that that doing that tour with so much, but like me meeting the Hot Water guys and getting to watch them be a band was really, I think, very helpful. And and Alexis figuring out like who we just wanted to be as a band, you know, I'll say that first of all. But Planes being on that tour, getting to see Planes play every night, and then de developing a, a relationship with Garrett. Um. It was like when we got home and we started writing all those songs, I, I remember writing that song and I wrote the words and I was by myself. I remember it came pretty easily, but I remember writing it and just thinking, I wrote this song for Garrett to sing. Like I did not, I started singing it myself and I was like, this doesn't even sound like me. Right. You know? Interesting. I, yeah. 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 I, I remember uh, showing the guys like, and this was before I could even like make a demo or whatever. So I remember showing them at the next practice and kind of laying it out for them and reading them the lyrics. And I remember George being like, that doesn't sound like you, you know? And I'm like, I think we, I think we have to have Garrett sing this song, you know? Yeah. Cause we had just had a relationship with him. We were about to make the record. And so, yeah, everybody kind of was totally on the same page and he flew to, uh, we recorded that, that record. My next question, yeah. if he, if he did it in person or if he, yeah. If he, okay. Yeah. Tell me about it. So we, we made the, we made watch out and crisis in this studio out kind of like just outside of Hamilton, Ontario. Hamilton's not too far from Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, but our friend uh, Julius who had made uh watch out with us, he had a studio out there. So we just kind of, we, we did the drums and some parts of, of it at a different studio and then kind of did all the guitars and vocals at this like farm studio with, with juice. And, uh, 
so Garrett flew flew to Toronto. Georgie went and picked him up and and brought him here. And yeah, it was it was exactly what you wanted it to be. You know, it was like he came in and you know looked as disheveled as ever, and it was you know <laughs> it was exactly who we you know who we remembered touring yeah. with and. I'll never forget him being him going into the vocal booth and like, okay, we're all kind of waiting. And, you know, I had done like a scratch track or whatever, just kind of give him like what I thought the cadence of the song could be or should be, but not, not much direction. You know, we wanted it to be him, but I remember him like starting to sing. And then he was like, no, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And we're like, okay. And he comes out, he does a shot of whiskey and then smokes a cigarette. And then goes back in and he's like, okay, now I'm ready, you know? And he started doing it. And it was so fucking cool to hear his weird voice soloed, you oh know? Oh my God, I bet. Because he's got one of those voices that at times it sounds like two or three different voices are coming out at once. You know, there's like the gruff layer and then there's that weird squealy type thing going on. And it's all, he can kind of make it happen at once. You know, and then he started doing all these crazy layers and doubles and and it was just like it turned out like just exactly how I imagined it could be. You know? Yeah, he I've I've always kind of described his voice as like it sounds like someone being very haunting and creepy right behind you, but also yeah. at like in a quiet sense, but also there's this incredible volume that's also happening at the same time. It's, yeah. it's a voice like none other, like it's no, absolutely. remarkable. I should see if we can get like, we should make a, an acapella version of it where it's just all the vocals soloed. <laughs> oh man. I've never thought about doing that, but I think that would be really interesting to listen to, to go back and, and just like, and hear that. But yeah, no, it was, it was such a cool experience. And, and I feel like for us, it was a, a real you know we were we were so moved by that band and and by him as a person when we toured with them and just the way that they treated us them and hot water it just kind of felt like this um you know we wanted to pay homage to yeah how how good he was and i i also just i'm glad that you brought that up because i don't i don't we don't talk about it that much and like i think it was really badass to just like just have a song in the complete middle of the record that's a different person singing it. In a you way, know? it reminds me a bit, you know, we talked about that Hope's Fall record where they had that song in the record with Matt singing, where you could tell for yeah. them, they were like, we just love hum, so we're going to write a hum song and just have you sing it, you know, kind yeah. of a deal. It sort of is that same energy where you clearly just wanted, you needed to do this yeah. and it came naturally and then here he was at your disposal yeah. to, to knock it out. It was really cool to listen, like knowing that I had written the song and, and felt that like I had totally just written a song for him to sing. Yeah. You know, it's and really then have cool. him come in and sing it and be like, okay, this is, a, you know? Yeah. It just it, like it embodied him, you know, it was great. Absolutely. Um, So, uh, to, you know, to, to sort of jump back and forth. So you had already been doing City and Color for a while and i i noticed that you had like um in like 2002 it looked like you already had a recording that ended up being songs that ended up being on sometimes so like it seemed like you maybe had those songs for a long time were you yeah how often was city and Co like was city and color 
uh playing shows and like were you actively pushing that band even when alexis on fire was starting already and like starting to tour and things like that no like i i'd written a bunch of songs and sang them by myself you know and recorded them in the basement and i would play solo shows but it wasn't even like i didn't even call it city in color it was just i was just me trying to do it yeah right it was like yeah i do this i'm in this band and then i've got these songs and you know so it was like really when i've told this story a lot but as alexis started to kind of tour more and like actually start to make some sort of notoriety his people started finding these songs these older songs of mine and you know, on LimeWire or things like that, where the Dallas Green CD, CD that I had made in my basement and like, you know, sold for five bucks at a coffee shop had made its way online. And so people started kind of asking me about these other songs. Um, it started to build I, like, it started to build like yeah. a, lore, a lore without you even realizing, yeah. like a very organic I, lore. It really did. There was an organic lore. What a great name for a band, organic lore. <laughs> um on tour with uh yeah so it was really just like this i knew i knew that that was something that i enjoyed as well you know like i loved being in a band i loved making noise but i did also just love sitting by myself with a guitar and writing a song start to finish you know and i felt like i had up to that point i had just been doing it for so long already that it was just part of me. And I, I assumed maybe like, you know, when I was older, I would sit down and work on a solo record or something. Like it was never this idea that I would um, do both or, or even have the ability to do both. So it just became this, the organic lore started to build. And <laughs> uh, I really just, it, it came from a, a want to make better recordings of some of these songs people were listening to. Cause I felt like I had, you know, outgrew these basement recordings. I never thought anyone would hear in the first place. So yeah, I, I mean, recorded, you yeah, know what I mean? I noticed that a lot of the songs from those, from like the early versions of that ended up being on that sometimes record, um, yeah. which is crazy that you, you know, obviously wanted to, to hold on to these songs like it's it's beautiful the, there's like this level of believing in a lot of these tracks to be like oh i need to give this the proper recording yeah so you know it's really really awesome well because i had you know i think i had made the two alexis records now before i actually went and to properly record all the songs that would be on sometimes so i felt like now i was like i felt like i was a professional musician or something <laughs> Right. You know, yeah. or yeah. you know what I mean? Like it was like this. No, I can if people really want to listen to this side of me, I can do a better job than that. It makes sense that you did wait as long as you did as you know, again, you know, you could have gone in and did those, you know, before the first Alexis record and they probably would have still been really good, but it is awesome that you waited as long as you did because yeah, you now have that experience and you could, you know, put that into these recordings, right? Yeah, exactly. And I and I had then written I'd written a bunch of new songs like that I felt like could be, you know, in this vein because I was writing obviously with Alexis, but that's such a collaborative experience that I still was, 
just picking up the guitar and kind of, you know, like there's a couple of songs that are on sometimes that are like directly related to me touring and learn, trying to learn how to live that way that I, you know, my, my response has always been to just write about what I'm feeling. Right. And so it was a mixture of these old songs that when I was a teenager, plus with all this new life I had experienced, you know, and I was like, okay, well, let me present this. Let me, let me control how I present this. Not, not just like this, like, um, these file sharing websites that are taking songs. I never thought anybody would listen to. (laughs) Right. Right. It was that it was like, let me, let me see if I can present like a good, let me present a a version of this to you that I'm proud of. Right. Was it, this is such a kind of a goofy question, but like, was it hard for you to accept or was it easy for you to accept how quickly people liked it? You know what I'm saying? Because it is such a different version of what you've been doing in a public eye that, you know, I have to imagine it was maybe scary or, you know, you didn't know what to expect. Right. I'm I'm still very uncomfortable with it. Is that right? (laughs) Like, well, because I think, I think it just took me by such surprise, you know, and I had already been trying to grapple with how surprised I was that people liked Alexis on fire, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that to have this other thing. And I was too young to understand that it was just everything I was, was hoping for was happening. Yeah. You know, because I was confused by the way it was happening. Yeah. I, I can look back and see that now I was, I was 25 years old and, and, um, you know, like that sometimes came out, we, we only put it out in the States or excuse me, we only put it out in Canada. We didn't put it out anywhere else. Like it didn't come out in America until after my second record came out, like totally, yeah. re-released it so that it could be out. And so we, we kept it very like, you know, we started Dynalone Records to put it out ourselves so we could be in control of it. Um, but so, yeah, it was just very confusing, you know, it was, and it made things awkward. It did. It made like, you know, it was, people thought of me differently. People started talking, like people from the scene started talking shit about me. Like it was this, just, you know, and I was doing nothing, but I just made a record and put it out and I was still touring with Alexis and it was growing and growing and growing. And I wasn't really giving it much attention because I, was it getting radio play in Canada? Yeah. Like how like yeah, that that's what I was curious of because I saw it, yeah. you know, it's it's like uh is it actually is it platinum in Canada? It's three times platinum in Canada. It's amazing. So like the fact yeah, it's that it's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. uh how did radio get a hold of it? Like was that a stunning situation to you? Like what was the story? For there? sure. Yeah. Well, I I think part of it was so because Alexis was starting to become, you know, I, I don't want to say like a household name in Canada, but because we were getting played on much music and not on radio because the radio would never play that type of music. Uh-huh. I think, I mean, I don't know if this is totally it, but I think because my voice being lent to a softer st- song, it was like, it was an easy thing for radio to kind of like grasp onto. Right. And then, it was like, this is the guy from that band. There was a bit of a story to it, you know? 
But then I think just kind of the same thing that happened with Alexis was people heard it and really liked it and then started like requesting it and calling in the radio to get it played. And like, you know, I wasn't on a major label or anything like that, but it was getting played like it was. And, you know, which the fact that you've stayed on Dine Alone the whole, like as Dine Alone the whole time with this project is also pretty awesome, especially at a point when you did that record with pink, which is incredible. Like the fact that you still, you know, that it's like, what is it like RCA slash dine alone? The release. Of yeah. That? It's incredible. We had to, we had to really fight to get that, to I have dine alone bet. on it. I bet but <laughs> we, you know, I, the thing was right. Like with Alicia, like I, I'm, she gets to do the side project out of her major label deal, Yeah, but it's still controlled by her deal. So I have to kind of, go in to be a part of that or it can't be done but there was no way that we were going to do it without having our thing on it because right it's what i built you know yeah. and it was what what we built on this side so it was like it was very important to us that dine alone has to be beside that rca logo because you know it well a being in control of everything allows you that you know there's nobody telling us you know yeah. And if they were to say to me, we, well, we can't put it out if we don't, if, if you put that on there and I would say, well, then don't put it out. Totally. You yeah. Know? And awesome. I feel good about that, about owning all my own shit and being in control of it that I can, you know, 1000%. Uh, but back then, Jerem's like, we had no clue that it was going to do what it did, but because we started it on, on our own and, and kept it close when it did blow up, we were then just continuously in a better position to, to like negotiate anything on our terms. Totally. Um, there was nobody in, above it. So in 2009, when Alexis put out, uh, started recording the, the old crows record, um, I know all of you were kind of doing your own thing. You know, you all had your side things going on. Like Wade had his band, you were yeah. doing like you were, waist deep in city and color like everybody was kind of doing things when you guys got got together to start writing like is it without even trying like all of a sudden it's like a transformer where no matter what like once you get in a room together those songs start coming out or was it harder to sort of like find a direction now that you guys had all these different avenues you were exploring i think i think the hardest part for us when we started to kind of dig into what crows would be was i think we were all just on i don't want to say disillusioned with with like the style of music we were playing we were struggling to find ways to keep ourselves like invigorated in what Mm, we were doing do you know what i mean yeah and i think because and, and it's like george speaks a lot about this now is like now I think that we've found ourselves in a place with Lexus where we'll, we, we believe we can make any record we want to. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter what it's, if somebody has an idea, we'll figure out a way to make it sound like us. Whereas when we were there, especially I know from my perspective, I had been, I had been com- continuously being uninspired by, by playing music like that. And not because I didn't want like it or didn't want to listen to it anymore. I just wasn't, the songs weren't, the, I was leaning more the other way, you know, just creatively. It was like, 
I was exploring another side of me and I was having a hard time um, finding it, you know, and even just like finding my place. And I think that was sort of what was happening. And there was other stuff going on in the band and all of that. But I think I, like, I love that record. I'm really proud. I think we pushed the limits of what we wanted our band to sound like, or could allow our band to sound like in that moment, mm-hmm. you know, and we explored new territory. And we, I think that we, I think we are all proud of the record, but it's definitely like, it's the period where we're like, the band is ending, mm. you know, like yeah. whether or not we all knew it, like, you know, it's only a year later, we're kind of like, I'm leaving the band and not, we're not telling anybody for a year. So, you know what I mean? Like, right, right. So it's just, there's all that life. I think uh, there's so much life attached to writing and making that record. And the way you describe sort of like the way you can explore all these different sonic avenues makes a lot of sense for your newest record where you listen to that. And it does sound like all like it sounds to me like these group of friends that have had all of these new influences and experiences or just growth musically that have now come together again to now make a record. And it's still where it's like at the core, you could still tell it's your band, but you hear all of the sonic growth that you've all had individually probably coming together and writing this record. Is that fair to say? Yeah, 100 percent, you know, and and really finding a place where we can all um just be incredibly supportive of of one another in this in this just we call it the agreement you know <laughs> where it's like i think when when the band was breaking up too it was like it had been this thing it had institutionalized us mm. it had consumed us and it it was who we all thought we were and you know we, we were kids when we started this weird thing and it had propelled us all these years and you know started from the weird tours for nobody to this big thing and we a bunch of us had been gotten married and you know and like just again it was just whereas making the new record i don't know there was just this like real i don't want to call it a revelation but it was like we were staying there and we were like wow isn't this beautiful that we still have this thing that we can just like stand in a room together and tell each other ideas and make a racket, you know, Yeah. sort of yeah. like the thing that started the band, you know, it was sort of like re it reinvigorated that the spirit of like why we did it in the first place, which then gave us this like canvas to be like, okay, what do you want to do? You want to do it like this? Do you want to play like this? George, do you want to sing? Do you want me to sing this part? Do you want me, you know, it, and it wasn't like that before it was, there was a lot of, tension and you know like trying to figure out how to wield this three-headed monster of a now it's like none of that exists anymore it's just this like just go in there and service the song whatever that may be that might be the answer to what i was about to ask which is you know the the band existing as long as it has and you all being able to come together and still write music i was curious what you think like the common thread of the band is like, what's the thing that when you're all together, you know, is like what makes a song happen? Uh, Humor. 
honestly, it's our it is the ability to make one another laugh uncontrollably still um, with a strange sense of humor that we all share for some reason that has been there since the very beginning. I think truly that is the thing that allows us to then like sit down and write a crazy song about, well, for instance, like there's a couple of songs on the new record about that Steele wrote the lyrics to for the first time that are about his journey to sobriety, you know? And it's like, that couldn't, it couldn't be a more serious topic, especially in our group because of the things we've experienced together, you know? Yeah. But it's the jokes that we tell each other upon walking into the room that, you know, they drop all of our guards and our vulnerability arises and that we can just, make whatever we you know we need to in that moment totally i love that that's great um it's a great answer and and the fact that you came up with that answer as quickly as you did also is the defining reason why it is that you know what i'm saying it's like i I was as i was asking i was like this is probably a hard question but for a band that's been a band i feel like any band that makes it past 10 years there's always you know it could be disjointed or it can be you know, like uh, there might be underlying personal issues between certain people that, you know, it makes it hard to present ideas because you think this person might disagree with this idea or, you know, there's going to be conflict because of this. But like at the end of the day, there's always one thing that makes you stay together. And I think humor Absolutely. being that is is a really cool answer. I love that. Yeah. And I, I bet you and you asked any of the other ones, they would say the same thing. <laughs> perfect they yeah. will because it yeah, is yeah, like yeah. it is this it's this um yeah it's that it's like that thing that that allows us to be open with one another or something i don't know and yeah i'm grateful for, i'm grateful for it you know it's the thing that got us through those early years in the van and it's still the thing we lean on to this day i'm curious when it comes to like up until now with this new record when you go in to do to do a new city and color record do you go in with different producers or different things in mind? Cause I saw you had done records with like Alex Newport, which is super cool. Like I could yeah. probably talk to you about 30 minutes, 30 minutes about working with him. And the fact you went He's to him best. twice, which yeah. means you obviously had a good rapport with the guy. Um, yeah. Like when you go in to do a new city and color record, do you go in with the mindset of like, this time I want to try exploring this sort of element to what this band could be because i feel like with the new record specifically that the single the the song underground like that has such a pop sensibility to it that i don't know that i could necessarily maybe i'm not as familiar but like to me that struck me as like a big direction shift to like a really big pop sensibility um was that something new to explore that you were going for with this new record I think for me, like with this, just really with anything creatively, I've realized I, I'm not really good at forcing it. it. It just sort of, it presents itself all of a sudden and then I kind of just follow um, where it takes me. And that, with every CNC record, it's kind of been that way. And with this one, the songs obviously are all rooted in something tragic, but as far as like the sonics and the arrangements and stuff, there was a lot of moments on this record where I just allowed my influences to, to take over, you know, and where I didn't fight them or I just let it be as easy as possible. 
And so like a song like Underground, you know, I love pop music. I love writing catchy choruses. I think I've got songs, a lot of songs that have catchy choruses, but I don't know that I've ever really just sort of like let myself just write a pop song. Totally. You know? And with Underground, it, it was one of those ones that just came so naturally and easy to me. And in a moment where I really needed it to, you know, and I, I was able to say everything I, I wanted to say in the song still too, without, without, you know, feeling like you're compromising for the sake like, of yeah, pop. And I, I didn't, I didn't try to make it a song for radio. It just worked out as like a great radio song. And, uh, yeah. So I think with, with this record, it was just definitely like, let it be easy. Let, you know, like let the arrangements be easy. Don't overthink um, too much. Like say what you need to say and make it sound alive, you know? Whereas like the last record I made was this long studio driven kind of, I wanted to make a, a, a very vast Basie, crazy studio record, but still like shrouded in me and never losing just like the simple way I try to deliver what I'm trying to say, you know? But that was just like a my friend Carl and I, we actively wanted to make like a, you know, a real big sounding record. Right. Right. And like layers upon layers of vocals and synths and all that stuff, just because I'd never made a record that way and always wanted to, you know? So I think with City in Color, it's always whatever I'm w wishing it to be in that moment is what it ends up being, right? Like the record before that, I was touring with the guys who ended up playing on that record was was played as my band for almost 10 years. And I'd spent like two and a half years touring with them before I wrote those songs. And when I started writing all the songs, I knew I was writing them to play with these guys in the studio the way we had just toured my other records you know so it was like a reaction like with the songs i wrote i feel like i wrote them as a reaction to being on the road with those dudes yeah right and so it kind of just like kind of worked itself it's worked itself like that for all of the records they all kind of just like uh are a, a reaction to the way i'm living in that moment is it hard for you to know when a record is done? Like when you're in the studio, like it strikes me as because it is such your thing um, as opposed to a full band situation. Like I can imagine how tough it is to be like, okay, we've now done enough stuff. Like I've added enough layers. I've added enough. Yeah. I've done this vocal take enough times. Like, is it hard for you to let go and just finally let it be done? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, that's the curse, right? With when you're making art, it's like, there isn't a finished product. There isn't a, you know, there's not a final score. It's like, you have to decide when it's done, whatever totally. it is, a painting, a book, a, a song, a film. It's like, it can always keep going, right? You could always, and I, I do feel like that's, what's good about the live show is that like, I still play in a band where it's like, it can be different from it can evolve. And yeah, totally. It can evolve. And I think that's, what's beautiful. I'm lucky. I feel lucky to have that space to go to as well. But I, I think the good thing for me is every time I've made a city and color record, as much as it's been like, you know, I'm writing the songs and, and singing them and trying to arrange them and co-produce the record. I'm all, I've, there's always somebody with me in the studio that I trust 
who we can agree that it's done. You right. know, whether it had been Alex or my friend Jakir King or or Matt Kelly, my 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 longtime bandmate who's who produced this last record with me, like, you know, he was there to just like me to lean on to say, like, we're finished, right? And yeah, it's that you know that it's not like I hate to say it, it's not settling. You're not settling when you finish. Totally. It's just like you have to tell yourself you're ready to move on to something different. Right. Right. You're ready yeah. to present this this group of ideas to people now. Get it out. You've got it out of your system. You know, let it go off, grow wings, do what it needs to, and you can start moving somewhere different. Totally. You know? a, th- a thousand percent. Yeah, that's something that just I was so curious to ask you about. Um. And before we get to the last question, I was actually curious, is there any influences for City and Color that people might be surprised by? Things that um, you always kind of point to, like, is there any singer-songwriters or anything like that, that when you go to start writing a record, you find yourself, you know, investing time in as some well, sort of like inspiration? I think the big one, and that I, I usually say when people ask me that is Sade. You know, yeah. like, I think... I don't think you can hear Sade in my music, but if I sat with you and played you songs and went, this is me, this is, you know, I'm trying to do a Sade thing here or I'm trying yeah. to do a Sade thing here. It's one of those moments where I think you'd be like, oh, okay. And if I played you the reference, you'd be like, oh, you just completely ripped that off. And I'd be like, yes, I did. Exactly. And I got <laughs> so that leads me to want to ask you how quickly into doing the you and me record did you decide that you guys were going to cover no or no ordinary love like was that was that something you bonded on it was very early on for me i i just like slowly presented it to alicia over time and yeah but see like the thing about it is that so roger alicia's manager manages chade as well oh so when we when we did that cover roger was like i'm gonna send it to her and i was like I don't know if I want, I don't know if I want yeah, you to yeah, do yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know? And then he, I don't really tell this story that much because it's like, it's my favorite story ever. But he, I have an email that he forwarded to me from her saying that it made her love the song like she never thought she could. Talk about a pinnacle. Dude, <laughs> I had an absolute, I read that email one late night and I had like a full a full mental breakdown. I called my mom. I was like, mom. That was going to be my next question. If you told your mom. Yeah. Told my mom. I was like, Sade has heard me sing. You know, we did it. <laughs> what yeah, an unbelievable was, story. Yeah, dude. It's like the, it's like one, if there's like, you know, if there's a way to be proud about something that, that was a moment where I was, I was very proud. Um, you know? I got to ask, have you, you familiar with the Deftones cover? Oh yeah, that's a it's pretty fucking with, good with Jonah. With Jonah, yeah. Jonah, yeah. I just showed my friend. I went and saw Mastodon and uh, Gojira the other night. Yeah, with a couple of my friends and and my one friend Aaron Wolf, who he's a firefighter now, but he used to sing in that band, The End, that, okay. that yeah. tech metal band that was on Relapse, and he's great. But he's working on some solo music, and he had for some reason I don't even know how this happened, but. He had never heard Far. He had never heard Water and Solutions, that record. Yeah. Never heard it. And he's like the type of guy that would love that record. Yeah. And he was telling me about it. He was like, I cannot, I can't believe I missed it. And he's like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, dude, this is incredible that you're getting to fall in love with that record. Like now. Now, yeah. But that, 
now, I don't know, he'd like never really heard Jonah. I was like, remember one line drawing? He was like, yeah, I was like, same guy. Anyways, I was like, you got to hear the Deftones doing No Ordinary Love with Jonah singing. And he was like, what? Dude. So I got to send him. Oh, it's such oh. a, yeah. It's, it's killer. It's fucking it's killer. It's so good. It's a, yeah. it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's, that's, yeah. I was, uh, of the covers well, see that, of that song, yours and the Deftones ones, I feel like are primo. I will say the only way that I was going to ever do a cover of that song was to do it the way we did it because of I, because of my understanding of how good the Deftones version is. Oh, yeah. I would, I'd never try to do like a, a pound for pound version like that because theirs yeah. is just so perfect and it it's so fucking weird. sounds like a deftone song absolutely that's you know that's that's the true trick when you're like when you can make a thing sound like your band but also it still has all the sensibilities of the original yeah Unreal. yeah um yeah. all right man when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards i think that's it's a tough question you know because i i do feel grateful that it feels like I've been doing it for a long time, you know? And I think my answer would probably have to be back when the the first City and Color record came out and Alexis was going and there was this, you know, the thing that I felt so much, so uncomfortable about back then, you know, like I said, like I, I didn't understand how to, um, I didn't understand how to be when all of that was happening because I was too young. Like it was like I said, everything I wanted was happening and I didn't understand it. I was confused by it. So I wasn't like, it was almost like I wasn't allowing myself to just experience it while it was happening. I was too confused by it, but I really do think it was then. It was like this, if I could go back, I would be, I would be in that moment more, you know, because I would just let myself realize that all I wanted was people to listen to the music I, I was making. And that's what everybody was doing, <laughs> you know? Um, I have to ask. So once that rec- that first record started to really take off, was there a show that you played that was to an amount of people you did not expect? And we, it was like, like a, whoa, kind of yeah. moment. I remember I had done, I was, so I would come home from an Alexis tour and then I would start just trying to go like I would get in the the van and me and my two cousins would drive around Ontario and I'd play like solo shows. Yeah. And it was like the first time I came home and uh, we had just maybe the record had just come out or maybe that the, we had announced that it was coming out or I think. And I, I had planned to go do like five or six shows around Southern Ontario playing at small like college pubs or whatever. And I remember I came, we came through Hamilton and I was supposed to be playing this downstairs little room in in like a, at a nightclub. And I got there and my managers, Joel and Trisha had told me that they'd moved the show upstairs to the like thousand cap room because that was how many people had showed interest for this. And I was so mad at them because I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not ready to go do this in front of a thousand people just by my, you know what I mean? Like I yeah, was, yeah, yeah. 
I was so again, but I was I was so confused about what was going on, you know. But and I remember I played the whole show with my hood up, like I was just so like maybe it was okay. Going back to that conversation we had, I wasn't nervous. I was just uncomfortable. Totally, you know. Yeah. And I I remember finishing the show and Chris O'Toole, my friend, who was who was the guy who would get get in the Alexis van with us. He was there and he came up to me afterwards and he was like. You know, I'm just going to tell you, I think you say, you always sound better when you're angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, thanks, Linz, you know? Yeah. But that, I remember that being like a specific moment where I was like, I was showing up thinking I was going to play for a hundred kids and then and it was a thousand. And oh I, my God. You know? Yeah. And, and it was just, yeah. So it would be, it would have, it would have to be in those, in 2005 and six, like where, that record comes out and then we put crisis out and that's really where it felt like we were doing it. Right. You know? Yeah. We were, we were doing it. You know, it's a funny comparison, but like years ago, not for this podcast, uh, I interviewed Jonathan Davis for, from corn for like a, a mm-hmm. public, just for alternative press. And I remember him telling me, cause I was like curious. I was like, where in corn's career did you all of a sudden, start playing venues that have barriers and big venues and whatever. And he said that corn was supporting Ozzy Osbourne, I think when they started to really get big and then they never went back. Like it went, it went from like, they were playing club, like intimate club shows band started to get big, uh, like record sales wise, they supported Ozzy Osbourne. And then after that, it was like 2000 cap rooms and onward. And they never yeah. went back to playing anything small again and how that was like a trip to him to be like, wow, like things have just changed so drastically overnight. It feels like, you know? Yeah. So I can yeah. imagine that's sort of similar for you. Yeah. I think that was it, especially just because the two, the two bands and I was now doing both and it, you know, it was like, yeah, it you know, it would then go on to, get it difficult and i yeah, have a hard time figuring out how and life would happen and all that stuff yeah yeah but, yeah yeah my yeah. other answer would probably be now is now i feel like i'm you know yeah 22 years later being back doing both yeah feel, feeling a bit more comfortable in my skin and you know right now i feel feel like i'm actually doing the thing i've worked so hard for love it dude <laughs> yeah. thanks for hanging out with me today this has been a lot of fun i appreciate it thanks man yeah Appreciate you too. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Dallas for coming on and thank you for listening. This episode was edited and produced by Ryan Rainbow. Shout out to him for making it sound so nice. Um, thanks for being here. And once again, reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now where Dallas answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that and help support the show. Take care of yourself. I'll see you next week. Be good. Bye bye.